You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here's your host, Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Alabama, and um, I have a special guest for you, uh, Jennifer Brand. She's the author of The Hospice Doctor's Widow. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Saul. I'm so glad to be here with you. Uh, so for the sake of context, where did you grow up? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I started out um, in the Chicago area, but when I was eight, we moved to um, New Mexico, which, uh, you know, Santa Fe, New Mexico, northern New Mexico. And I grew up there and then went to undergrad in Boston. So what was your childhood dream? My childhood dream? Oh, my goodness. I don't know that I had my act together enough to have a childhood dream. I just kind of of wanted to get through the day, I think. I don't know. Um, Yeah, it was it was a good childhood. It was it was it had its challenges, but it was a good one. And I and I think I yeah, I just sort of wanted to, I don't know, do my best. I was not one of those kids that yeah, knew exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. I, I sort of kind of went from one thing to another and did my did my best with whatever I got into. So and I, and I've kind of done that all along. So yeah, <laughs> sounds like most of us, you know, take it one day <laughs> at a time. Whatever comes comes. So, right. <laughs> what was your first experience of uh, death, dying, and caregiving? Well, my first experience, real experience with death was my my only sibling, David. Um, shortly after I left for college, he was in an accident and he didn't die right away. He was in a coma, um, but then there was not enough brain activity to um, keep him on, you know, organ support system. So they extubate, my parents decided to extubate him. And so he died when he was 13 and I was 18. I can't say that was a caregiving experience per se, but it certainly was um, the big death experience. You know, it, it, it's your, your sibling, in my case anyway, he was my person. He was my mm. only sibling. And and so at a very young age, I lost my person. Um, and that that has shaped the rest of my life. How did you process uh, that grief? Um, you know, it, it, hard, difficultly. Um, it, so, so first of all, when you lose a sibling at a young age, um, one of the first things that you have to consider is that the, the survivor sibling... Um, doesn't necessarily process his or her grief because you sort of know for the rest of your parents' lives, you are simply trying to fill the hole in their hearts, Hmm. knowing full well that you never will. Um, And so uh, um, I probably in some ways didn't really start processing my grief fully until after my mother died, which was almost 20 years later. Um, there was a real, and, and I've, I've heard of other survivor siblings that describe the same thing. I, it, there, after my mother died, I kind of felt like I'd been holding my breath for 20 years, you know, um, hmm. 
and so I, I basically kind of process both both their grief at the same time. When you're when a kid dies, of course, the main focus is the parents. People can't imagine losing their kid, and I and I get it. I mean, I I mean, I get it to the degree that somebody who doesn't have kids can understand that. But the sibling really gets lost in the mix, um, and so there's a special place in in my heart for for sibling survivors because um, mm. it's hard. It's very very hard. Whenever I hear of you know a tragedy, a shooting, or a um, accident, and so forth. I, I always, and like, you know, when a kid's die, I always, everybody kind of thinks about how awful it is for their parents. I always mm. think about their siblings, you know, their siblings, life has changed for them completely for the rest of their lives. It will be shaped in an entirely different way um, than, than, than what it was the day before. So yeah, yeah, it was a big, it was a big deal. Your book, The Hospice Doctor's Widow, uh, really, uh, it contributes a lot to the conversation of death, dying, and especially in the context of family caregiving. Uh, could you give us the background and the motivation for writing the book? Absolutely. Um, thank you for asking. So um, uh, my husband and I enjoyed a wonderful life. He was a palliative care physician in our university medical center, and I, you know, did what I did, which was work... Um, I do interim leadership in large physician practices. And, and then we, we got a diagnosis. He was diagnosed with a stage four metastatic cancer. And so suddenly all of that guidance and advice and, and, and care that he had been providing for other, for patients and their families, you know, started to apply to us. I am also a self-taught um, self-taught being the operative word, collage artist. And so one of the things I turned to rather quickly for my own self-care was uh, art, you know, and I started art journaling um, all of my thoughts and feelings as we pr progressed with this process of me taking care of him and him ultimately dying. Um, I just kept a journal, basically. I kept an art journal and I kept it for about a year and a half after he died. So a, a portion of it, probably about a third of it is grief processing. Um, but after he died, um, I was working in one of those practices. Like, like I said, I work with doctors a lot and um, a neurologist that I worked with was telling me that he was in the process of diagnosing three different patients with ALS. Mm. And I know, and um, he was just sort of, he was sort of heartbroken about having to give them this news. And I brought my journal in to show it to him. I'm not exactly sure why, but I did. I brought it in and he took it home that night and then came back the next day and said, you know, Jennifer, you're not getting your journal back. <laughs> I will be loaning it to these patients and their spouses. He said, because it helps close a gap between what the specialist can do for the patient mm. and what the family caregiver really needs. And, um, and he said, you know, if you need to get this published, you, you need to find a publisher because this will be a useful tool to all sorts of other people who are in the family caregiver um, situation. And um, 
And so while that was really inspiring, so I, I did, I found a, a small publisher, um, small press, and they were willing to take a chance on it because it, it is a very unusual book. Um, and um, they took a chance on it and we published it, they published it and it, it, is, it has helped a lot of people um, and it has won four awards. And so um, it's, it's really exciting, um, but it, it was never intended, <laughs> it was never intended to be a book. It is basically my art journal about the saddest, most difficult time in my life. Um, but, but it, but I think that's part of why it's helping so many people is that um, I was pretty honest about it, about what we were going through. And I think the other thing that really helps people is Bob and I, because him, because of his professional experience and me, because of my personal experience with the loss of my brother and my mother, which I mentioned earlier, um, we had insights uh, that not a lot of people have. Um, as a physician, Bob would decide about a treatment, you know, differently than perhaps you and I would decide about a treatment. Mm. And so I watched him do that, you know, several times as he as he was presented with new treatment options, and I distilled that into language that's in the book to to sort of I made notes on how I observed him making those decisions and that has proven you know helpful to other lay people who don't necessarily know how to go about those kinds of decisions so it's it's it was that kind of thing what I like about your book is it's really special there's raw emotion but also you chronicled uh, some of the wisdom you learned from your husband and part of that is the concept of precious time. Uh, could you explain more about that? Yeah, and and in fact, um, why don't I go ahead and read page three, which is the page that's pe precious time. Um, precious time. He has helped families understand by telling them they were into precious time, meaning death is likely, if not imminent. Precious time is when you say what you need to say and you don't say what you will later regret. Now it is us. We are into precious time. He is going to die of this disease and I will go on and have to live with how I handled our precious time. And so, yeah, that's page three and there's some some art behind that, those notes. And he did, he used to tell patients that moreover, their families, this is it, this is precious time. We've, you know, we've got this, this is going to happen. And we've got sort of one chance. There's no, there's no go backs. There's no do overs. Yeah. And, um, and they really appreciated that um, because, because a lot of physicians and healthcare workers aren't willing to say, you know, this is where this is headed. Um, and, and there are missed opportunities then, and then there are regrets. So, so that was a concept that, that he used in his practice all of the time. Um, one of the things that I think is very effective about it is the language is simple, it's universal, um, but it's, and it's totally understandable by all of us, you know, you don't have to have a medical degree to understand when somebody looks at you and says, you're in the precious time. This, 
you know, this is precious and, and you need to treat it as such. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, uh, that's a gift. And, um, and, and it's been really wonderful, as I have told other people, as I've done author talks and interviews and so forth, listen, Bob left me everything and he left me the concept of precious time and I am giving it to the world. Y'all need to use this concept. Um, and it, and it, and I'll tell you, Saul, it's been really wonderful because I received an email a couple of weeks ago from a nurse in Canada who, after hearing me talk about precious time and reading this page in the book, um, she was working in, in the ICU with a physician and, and there was a patient and the patient was clearly you know, gonna, gonna die. And um, the physician was expressing a reluctance to call the family. Mm. And this nurse said to him, you need to call the family because this is their precious time. And he did. And they, and the family got there in time and they were able to share their precious time with their loved one before the loved one died. So um, please use this concept. Um, my, my husband would, would love to know that his, that his good work is, is uh, making its way around the world. <laughs> it, is, it is really powerful because it's a time we take for granted. But how was that for you as somebody who's lived through it? What was precious time like for you? Well, that's a great question because in our case, um, it was probably a little longer um, you know, be, be, because Bob, that was Bob's term, I had heard it for years before mm. Bob got sick. And so when he got sick and, and I knew he was terminal, I applied that concept of precious time. Whereas with most patients, right, you're not doing it in families. You're not doing that until sort of later in the disease process of saying precious time. But I've also had somebody who got who read the book who then bought some for all of his his couple friends. His wife died, um, and he bought this book for all of his couple friends because they were all in their late seventies and eighties. And he was like, "Listen, by virtue of our age, right, yes, we're yes. into precious time." Yes, and so it was that concept of balancing. Yes, this is precious, but in our case. Uh, Bob lived for 22 months following his diagnosis, and anyone who has been through family caregiving knows it is not all golden and lovely every moment of every day in a family caregiver situation. It has really, really difficult challenges on the relationship, you know, all sorts of challenges. So I did my best, you know, I certainly did my best to to that last part of it saying, okay, I knew that someday I was going to look back on how I handled our precious time and I was going to have to live with that. And, and so that, that was really, really helpful, really grounded me quite a bit. I became, (laughs) I became a much nicer person than I really am. (laughs) (laughs) He also looks like he used to talk about personalization of end of life choices. Yeah. Yeah. So the note on page four says, he helps patients understand the personalization of end of life choices by telling them about his own parents. My dad wanted only to be kept comfortable. My mother wanted every last life extending measure. We honored both of their wishes because the right choice for a person is their own. And that was a true story. Both of his parents 
lived into their 90s. His dad was also was a, also a physician, had said early on, listen, the minute I start to show any sort of decline, just keep me comfortable and let me go. And his mother was like, oh, no, not for me. You know, I want everything that will extend my life. And, you know, those are basically two, the, the two ends of that spectrum. And, um, and, and both of them are right because that's what that person wanted. And that's exactly, that's exactly how this goes. Um, but the trick is you have to have those conversations. You have to start to have those conversations. And ideally, you're going to have some of them when everybody's healthy. Um, because, because Bob and I did plenty of times have, have the conversation about what each of us sort of wanted and didn't want in end of life. And long before he got sick, and those were those were great cornerstones to come back to to say, do you still feel this way? Because that's the other thing, Saul. Mm -hmm. You can change your mind. You can absolutely change your mind. And one of the things about your healthcare proxy and your and your person is that um, you have those conversations so that they have an idea of when you have changed your mind about something, because that's what being a proxy is making the best decision based on, you know, what you think the person would want at the time it's happening. So yeah, I, I, uh, I, I loved and, and he really did. He would sit down with, with people and tell them about his, his own parents. And, and, uh, and it was absolutely a true story. I wasn't, <laughs> I didn't know him when his father was alive, but yeah. I did know him when his mom, I mean, when his mom was alive. So yeah, those are, that's a, a great illustration. Uh, with that, we'll take a break. Our guest is Jennifer Brand, the author of The Hospice Doctor's Widow. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with uh, Jennifer Bryan. Uh, how did you navigate uh, the anticipatory grief? That's a great question too, Saul. Um, the anticipatory grief was difficult because as I mentioned earlier, I had lost my brother and my mother already. So I, I knew just how much it was going to hurt um, to lose Bob. And um, and I did early on find myself um, kind of tied up in knots with this anticipation of how much it was going to hurt to lose him. And it was actually a friend of mine who I was describing to her this trouble I was having. And she said, you, you've got anticipatory grief, which was honestly mm. a term I had never heard before. So of course I looked it up. Um, and yes, it, it's in the journal as well, because anticipatory grief is a real thing. And one of the things that was that, that I noted in my diary was that once I had sort of the name of it, that it was real, and I had read some study results that, you know, some people describe the anticipatory grief as worse than the after death grief. Um, then I could sort of put it in its place, you know, honor it, but not let it ruin 
our precious time. Uh, many caregivers suffer a lot from this, and it affects the precious time because the anxiety that it is going to happen, it is going to happen. And sometimes I'm like, yes, it is going to happen, but it's not happening right now, right? So enjoy this time. Take it one day at a time. So yeah. what is your advice for caregivers dealing with this at this time? Yeah, so um, uh, my advice is is recognizing... Um, and I, I had this realization while I was while I was taking care of Bob. We're going through we were going through two different processes, um, and this is actually a page in the journal. Um, we're going through two different processes. He is dying. I am surviving, and and they're intertwined. There's no question about it. But my advice to the caregiver in that is there is going to be the survival period there is going to be the after the death period and what what we try to do in precious time is is minimize the regret so trying to balance um uh being in the moment and and taking care of the the stuff because that's the other thing that just sort of bogs you down is you know taking care of the physical stuff and the basics and then leaning in to the special moments when they happen, the intimate moments of closeness um, and, and trying to just be there because those are the moments you'll want to remember and draw on later when you're alone. Um, mm. And, if, you, and if, you're, if you're too busy wringing your hands about your person dying, you won't really be able to just feel and just be in those moments even when they're hard um we had plenty you know we did ex excessive i mean extensive preparation for bob's death and my survivorship and it and it was not easy um but but man it brought us closer together and i look back on it and and i think about him with great love and respect and fondness and that time was really really special mm, that's really powerful uh you mentioned earlier about going through two different processes almost like two different roads and um <laughs> that is really powerful to look at it like that because yes the person you love is dying um but after that death you you still have a life to live and um <laughs> it can be challenging you know how did you work out those two processes yeah it can be it can be challenging and and don't get me wrong i i'm not necessarily talking about um thinking about things like i can't wait you know i can't wait to go on a trip or it's not that kind of um after the death it's more of a self-preservation. It's more about thinking about the mental and emotional health of my future self. Yeah. Um, and, and again, um, because I had early, early experience with loss, I, I knew what, what that was like. I knew what it was like not to be able to go back and 
I happened to be lucky with my brother. I, we didn't have any, we didn't have a fight before he died or anything like that. Our last words to each other were, I love you, you know, but it could have just as easily been that way. Um, so I was, I didn't have a lot of regret with David, but I knew how lucky I was that I didn't. Right. So, yes. yeah. So it's that balance of, um, because because the other factor that that comes in is that the caregiving is so exhausting mm. that and so emotionally laden that there are moments there were moments certainly for me when i wanted to run away you know i mean there were and they're yeah. they're in the journal i mean i i i and then i would just sort of sort of play it out yeah and okay so how does that feel and then how does it feel same thing, preservation of my future self. He's still going to die if I run away, right? Yeah. And then I'm going to feel 10,000 times worse. Worse. Right? <laughs> For not because being I ran there. away from, <laughs> from my love, from, you know, in the hardest time. So, yeah. so kind of getting myself, you know, I got I to gotta get back to it. I, I, I'd love to run away, but it, it really in the long run is not going to be good for anyone if I do that. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the other side of it is when you're so exhausted and you think, oh, my gosh, I don't think I can do this any longer. And you realize oh, but wait, when I'm not doing this any longer, he has died. And and just how heartbreaking that is. You know, your book is so special. And if you're listening, I would really encourage you to, to get this book. Um, it's because you share your emotions, you share your pain and your joys. Uh, you don't hide, you don't sugarcoat how you feel in that moment. And really, you're... Uh, the, you know, they, I, they talk about two processes. That really touches me deeply because, uh, especially in, 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 the, in the aspect of honoring, honoring both processes. Uh, like I, I visit hospice patients, and in most cases when the patient has begun to die and they are really on that journey now, getting much closer, and in most cases I see family members, you know, jumping and crying, don't go, don't go, don't go. And... Um, <laughs> It, it becomes tough because they are going, you know. I think um, that's a precious time to, you know, to say peaceful, a peaceful right. goodbye to honor their process, and then in a way find a way. <laughs> I don't know how, um, but every time I see that, I really feel sad because I feel like it somehow it interrupts <laughs> a little bit of. <laughs> yeah. It. It can be taken away from, you know, if, if you're, if you're, if you're, and part of that, Saul, I think is our, is our societal um, aversion to the topic of death. Yeah. That we, you know, we don't even, half the time we don't even use the word. We say things like passed on or transitioned instead of died. Um, and and we won't talk about it and we and it extends after someone dies we don't then know what to say to someone and so then someone who's grieving feels worse because yeah. nobody knows what to say to them if we could just get better yeah. about the topic then i think people would be able to lean into their precious time a little bit more instead of oh don't go don't go knowing full well 
we don't we don't have any choice about going you know i mean it 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 happens to everyone and it is and and it is going to happen to the ones that you love and um and i i'm not saying for for one second that i am trying to mitigate the sadness i i this no. to me the sadness is the love what i'm trying to mitigate is the regret is the regret for things that we could have handled differently had we faced what was really happening mm. um that that's the difference um is is just yeah is is looking back and saying oh i wish i'd spent less time wishing they weren't going to die and more time just loving on them you know or you whatever go. it was <laughs> that is powerful and that is i think you know, from your book i take that and this that, that's something i have to pass on to the families of um the patients that we see because Uh, once you enjoy that precious time and the finality comes i think it's easy to let go and honor and respect both processes because like you said we cannot stop it is it is inevitable it is going to happen is happening um but if we enjoy that precious time we are able to slowly let go and continue our journey and then continue with the legacy of our loved ones and continue with a new relationship the bond the relationship doesn't die the person physically dies but there's a continuing bond and then exactly. to continue to develop a new relationship is a <laughs> new bond so it's really yeah. powerful once you enjoy that precious time yeah yeah no it is and feel and feel better about ourselves going on you know after the death that you know instead of worrying and and regretting and but feeling that everything you said feeling feeling better about ourselves too going forward um i don't think it makes it easy Saul, but i do no. think it makes it easier you know than it than it is if you if you you know get caught up in the denial and the whatever or or yeah get caught up in stuff. <laughs> and believe me, yeah. I I I got caught up in stuff on occasion with like early on before I sort of got my head straight. I uh, there I mean like you said the book is raw, the book is my diary. Um and there were moments that were very very difficult in in uh in our relationship and um and in the process. So and another important thing that I like and I would love our listeners to hear you honor uh the survivors journey because sometimes we take for granted i've seen from hospice that the people who are dying actually in most cases they're okay they are ready <laughs> it yes. is the survivors in most cases in that period who are going through the most pain and uh, i think sometimes we get it twisted <laughs> no that's exactly it. bob used to say that all the time to to the fellows and and other people on the team you know and to anyone who would listen basically he would say the patient is going to be fine i have seen death thousands of times it's peaceful the patient is going to be fine it's the family i worry about hmm. and he was exactly right and you are exactly right it's uh yeah we're still here <laughs> we're still here With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, 
Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Saul Ebem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Jennifer. Um, one of the things that I like is you designed this uh, at Peace Toolkit. Can you talk to us about it and how you came about that? Absolutely. Um, in the book, page 32 of the book, um, uh, the, no- the journal note reads like this. We had the foresight to transfer the cars and other property to my name. When the notary public made a comment about why we were doing it, we told her Bob was dying. She squirmed uncomfortably. I said, we're at peace with it. Something I had heard Bob say to others. For the most part, it's true. At end of life, people die. I wish more people would accept that openly. We are not at war with it. We are at peace with the fact that at the end of life comes death. We are facing the tasks of getting things in order so that when the time comes, I will only have to love him, to mourn his death and miss him. And the art that's on this page is, is a uh, the at sign, you know, like you use on the computer, kind of uh, over the peace sign. Um, they're together at peace. Mm. Um, and so we did, uh, Saul, we did, Bob and I, a tremendous amount of work to prepare for his death and my survivorship, such that um, like, like this day that we put the property in my name um, and obviously got a lot of other documents together. And I do have a page in the, in the book where I list all the things that we did that I was really glad that we did together hmm. before he died. And then a couple of things that we forgot to do <laughs> that I, that I was kind of bummed out that we forgot to do. Um, so that's in there. But the other thing that has, has come about as a result of this, um, is that a lot of people have asked me like, how do I know what to do besides looking at that list in the book? And so I created um, a free download from my website. It's called the At Peace Toolkit, a guide to being at peace with end of life. And it's, you know, it's a free download and you, I recommend printing it out because I'm an old woman and we still use some paper in, in my, in my day, but, um, but also because it just helps you kind of keep track of it, but sort of a step-by-step of what you need to talk with your family about and what you need to put together in order, um, you know, just, just to be ready um, and to start the conversations and so forth. So yeah, the, uh, the at peace uh, symbol has been, um, yeah, has been a, a, a real, a real mantra. What are some of the things that um, I know is in the book and you can, we can't give away much, but what are some of the things you feel people need to be aware of to be at peace or to do to be at peace? So, um, you know, the, the biggest things are, um, your, your advanced care planning or advanced directives and healthcare proxy, having conversations with people, with the people you love, if you want them to, to be able to make decisions for you, if you're unable to make them for yourself, 
That's super important. And what you're doing there is you're giving your loved one who's doing it, you know, the, the gift of some degree of certainty, right? In, there's, it's going to be devastating if they have to do it, but it's, you want it to be devastating because they're losing you, not because they don't know what, what you would want. Um, so that's, that's pretty important. The healthcare proxy issue is pretty important. That's in the toolkit. Um, that's in the book. And then, and then the other thing is getting the paperwork together, um, you know, and, and having estate documents, will, that sort of thing, because at least in the States and in certainly I'm sure in many other countries, um, you know, the government will take a big chunk of your estate if you don't have a documented plan for who it should go to. Um, that's certainly how it is around here. Um, and it's just, you know, we know, we know at the end of life comes death. So, so, you know, why would we not just get ready for it? And I mean, honestly, when you do all this stuff, if everybody's healthy, you know, you put it on a shelf, you may revisit it. I usually recommend revisiting it every leap year because yeah. right. Things do change. You may, you know, you may change your mind. You may acquire some additional property, that kind of thing that, you know, that you want to go to certain people or whatever, but you don't really, once, once you have some of these conversations, you don't really need to talk about it all the time. Right. You just, yes. you've had it and you know what each other wants and you can touch base and say, yeah, do you still feel this way? You know, kind of thing. You watch a movie and right. Somebody's in a car accident and they have, you know, they're on uh, organ support and the, you know, you turn to each other and go, so I think I know what you want on that, right? You still want that, what we said in the documents. Anyway, so I think that's the other big, big important thing. And, and it is great to be able to do it before anybody gets sick. And again, just, just want to stress, you don't have, you can change your mind about any of these things. You just, you just need to change them in your paperwork. It's, it, it no, nothing says it's forever, but but having some conversations about how you feel about it is uh, is a good thing. Why do you think that uh, in our culture uh, we struggle with preparation for death? Because I think your book contributes a lot in that it helps caregivers, but it also, there's an element of the art of dying well. Why do you think that in our culture we struggle to prepare for the finality? I think, I think it's more about we, we just, we don't really get real. You know, we, we get like this sort of fake happy. I mean, it's maybe it's not fake all the time. Maybe sometimes the happy is real, but it, you know, there's all these, like, there's all these tropes and so-called artwork that say, be happy, be creative. You know, the only difference is your attitude and the, and the, and that's okay. That's mm. that, that can, you know, that, I'm not saying that's, but, but there is a level of true, right? There's a level of true, of love, of grief, of life that we just seem unwilling to go, to go there, even with the people we feel closest to. So we think, and, we think, oh, it, it will make us feel sad when I begin to do advanced directives and do my, you know, prepare for my finality. Right. We think that's really sad. And sometimes, uh-huh, 
Go ahead. We think it's really sad, but I'm going to tell you that having done it now um, and having done it with my late husband when he was dying, there are few things more intimate than than that than than knowing someone so well and entrusting to your other person or another person what you want and don't want at the end of your life in terms of say healthcare or life sustaining measures but then even what you want and don't want in terms of um Dis, you know, disposition of your remains and a memorial service and a legacy. I mean, this is good stuff, right? This, this, this is really knowing someone. This is really being close and then carrying it out for them mm. is just one of the greatest honors, you know, you can bestow on someone. And that that's really special. And uh you're the right person to, to speak to us about this because somehow life has had you where you've, you've suffered from sudden death and then you had death through terminal illness. You've seen the spectrum that anything can happen. So it's really important to plan. Sometimes we think we have time, we have time, but then sudden death and we haven't planned anything for our finality. And yeah. it can be challenging for your survivors. Uh, for the people that you love. So what are your final thoughts? My final thoughts are um, what I call the triad of certainty. At the end of life comes death. There are no do-overs in end of life. And changed forever, the surviving loved ones remain and remember. And that tri and that triad, I mean, that sort of says it all in terms of it's going to happen. We can't, we can't do it over. There's no dress rehearsal. And this is this is one of the biggest events that happens in our lives is the death of our loved ones. And we carry it forward forever. So let's put some purpose into it. Let's lean into the love and lean into the preparation, the preparation is indeed a demonstration of love. Powerful. How can our listeners get a hold of you and also probably get a copy of the book? Yeah, the my website is hospicedoctorswidow.com and you can get there either by spelling out the word doctor or just DRS. So hospicedoctorswidow.com and that's how you can get in touch with me. And that's how you can buy the book. The book is available internationally on Amazon. Um, so uh, I would encourage you if you're in another country to go ahead and check it out on, see if you can find it on Amazon. I think there's a couple of places that it's not, but most countries um, have it available. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Thank you, Saul. This has been a pleasure. That was Jennifer O'Brien, the author of The Hospice Doctor's Widow. Thank you very much for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. 
For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.